you got? Uh, yeah, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. Buddy, uh, not now. Uh, can you please go back to the, uh, to the pit? I'll come visit you in a little while, okay? I didn't know you had elves working here. Boy, you're, you're hilarious, my friend. He doesn't, uh, get, get back to the story, please. <clears throat> so, on the cover above the title. Does Santa know that you left the workshop? You know, we're all laughing our heads off. Did you have to borrow a reindeer to get down here? Buddy, go back to the basement. Hey, Jackweed, I get more action in a week than you've had your entire life. I've got houses in L.A., Paris, and Vail. Oh. Each one of them with a 70-inch plasma screen. So I suggest you wipe that stupid smile off your face before I come over there and smack it off. You feeling strong, my friend? Call me Elf one more time. He's an angry elf. Look at you! One more time. Call me out. You're an elf. Oh. He, he thinks he's an elf. Listen, Miles. Listen, Miles. He must be a South Pole elf. United Methodist Church, we are an itinerant group of people. That means that the bishop and the cabinet, those are the district superintendents, that every year they decide if preachers move or stay. My name is Andrea Smith. I'm the current pastor here at West United Methodist Church. We are appointed for a year at a time, which means that every year the church can ask that the pastor move or the pastor can ask that the pastor move if the pastor feels like he or she has uh, done their due. So with that in mind, I wanted to share with you that perhaps I have thought that maybe it was time for me to go. How does that make you feel? If it makes you feel really happy, I would like for you to keep that subdued inside for just a second. If you were on the leadership team or the strategic team and you were to find out right now that your pastor has asked to move, maybe that might make you angry. If you're a a parishioner, that's what people that go to church are called, if you're a parishioner of West, that Perhaps uh, it could make you happy. That would make me sad. But uh, it could also make you angry. It would be a last-minute move, something that you had no preparation for at all. I want you to think about a situation in your life. I used that one because it is fictitious. If I did feel like it were time for me to go and that I had done what God had called me to do here, 
I would hope that it would not be revealed to you in the middle or the beginning of a message uh, in, wor- in the middle of a worship service. That would be the most inappropriate leadership move I could ever make. And everyone would have a right to be angry at me. This morning we're talking about anger. So I tried to use a fictitious example because you see there are so many that are real. I want you to take a look at these images for just a second. These are images that should stir up anger. The first example I used was silly because sometimes when we start talking about things like anger and emotion and we use real life examples, it gets uh, too close to home. I want to take just a second of what I call pastor privilege. That means that it has nothing to do with what I had originally intended to say, but it's just something that I feel like I need to say as the leader, as the pastor of this church. It is ironic that today, for the past you know, six to nine months, today's message was going to be on anger. This week has been, or the past two weeks actually, have been weeks in our nation where Many different situations have happened that have caused people to be angry. Lots of different groups of people are angry. And angry at one another. I am not going to use this as a political platform. I never will do that. I believe that you don't need me to be involved in politics because I know very little about it. You do, however, ask me to be a leader in faith. And so in a moment of pastor's privilege, I just want to say thank you. Because you see, I do get on social media some. I try not to do it a lot because it screws with my head, if you want me to be perfectly honest with you. I call Facebook sometimes fake book because we want everything to look all beautiful and it it really really never is. We all have stuff. But anyway, that's my rant on Facebook. I do want to tell you that as your pastor, I couldn't be more proud of how you as a group of people responded over the past two weeks of all the things that are going on in our nation. Whether you agree with decisions that have been made or not, your persona and how you have portrayed yourselves on social media, I could not be more honored to be a part of this team of people. Because you see, everybody watches how we respond, especially when we call ourselves Christians. And so when things happen in our world, 
people that are cynical about God and about faith and about religion, and there are a lot of people cynical in our world today, they watch to see how all the good Christian people respond. And you all, in your posts and in your shares and all those things, you consistently respond with love, even when you don't agree. You've even said that in your post. So in just a brief moment of pastor privilege, I wanted to say thanks for that. Because I believe that that's how we offer one another Christ. It's in the moments that we uh, don't really think we're taking a stand that we are taking a stand. And you did not react in anger. This morning, we are, and in all the weeks following uh, this message series, we are looking at the life of a few people in the Old Testament We're looking at a king named Saul, a young boy this morning in the story whose name was David, who went on to become king, one of the most notorious or the most notorious king in in the Old Testament. And his temple, the remnants of the temple still stand in Jerusalem. I had the honor of being there in January of last year, King David. We're going to look at some of David's wives. He had multiple of those and their actions and their reactions to him. But we're also going to be looking at real topics, real emotions that we feel. Because you see, I believe that uh, the goal of the church is that we equip one another with ways to live and ways to love that are real and relevant to our lives each day. Church and worship and the message or the sermon is not some pie-in-the-sky dream or me standing up here telling you what you ought to do. It's what we are called to do together. Managing our emotions makes us healthier people all the way around. So hopefully today and in the weeks following, some of the things that I share, which are taken from psychology journals and individual interviews with licensed psychologists, I hope that you will find some of these things helpful. In the daily devotions that I've been sending out these past two weeks, I hope those are tips and insights that tie back to scripture that you'll find help you be equipped for day-to-day life. This morning, we are looking at anger. It's probably one of the most difficult to preach about because I believe it is the most real and also potentially the most damaging. Anger is a secondary emotion. Now, there are primary emotions that we all feel, and then there are secondary emotions, and anger is a secondary emotion. It's the only one we're going to be looking at in this series that is secondary. And what that means is it is not at the root of why we are feeling and thinking and acting the way that we are. It's sort of up here. There's an underlying cause, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning We're going to look at the life of King Saul, and I want to read to you from the book of 1 Samuel, 
Uh, a few verses from chapter 17 and then a few verses from chapter 18, there was this little boy named David. He was a shepherd boy in the eyes of his brothers, uh, the whole clan, the tribe of Jesse that he was a part of. His dad was named Jesse. This whole conglomeration of young young men, he was the, the runt of the litter. He was not a soldier. He was a shepherd boy. All his brothers were out fighting the battles And they were fighting this group of people called the Philistines. And David was not a part of the fight. But there was this really big warrior that was on the other team. And his name was Goliath. And perhaps you've heard the story about David and Goliath. And the little boy fights the big giant. But Goliath, he was this huge soldier. And they had been fighting and fighting and fighting the two different groups of people. And the Israelites were just not winning. Saul, King Saul, who was brief history on Saul, one of the most handsome men of his time. He was revered by all. He was the first king of the people of Israel. They did not have a king when they migrated and they followed Father Abraham out of their land to go inhabit new land. They didn't have a king. They just sort of self-governed. But all the other groups of people that were in the world back then that they knew of, they all had kings. So these people who had been following God, Yahweh, this divine presence, they wanted a human king. And so they begged and asked for a king. So Samuel, who was a judge had this divine connection with God, and so he kept praying to God, and God revealed to him, okay, I'm going to appoint a king. Here's who I want you to choose. Choose Saul. So they did, and he was a strapping kind of guy. He was the man. Everybody loved him. He was a brilliant warrior. He was the perfect king. He had it all, except they just couldn't win against this one group of people. And they had some of like the star athletes, the star soldiers, and this one guy named Goliath. Uh, Scholars believe he was probably over seven feet tall. He was huge. He was a force to be reckoned with. And anytime he would come out to battle, the Israelites would lose. This puzzled Saul. It kept him up at night and... David happened to be nearby, heard of the problems of the people and the way that the battles were going, and he asked his brothers, well, what's going on here? And his brothers, you know, sort of scoffed at him and fussed at him and then said, you know, you don't know anything, but here's the deal. You've got this real big guy, and we're not winning. He always wins. They always win. And so David says, well, let me try. And they laugh. They're like, really? Saul, however, got word of this, that this young guy named David was willing to give it a shot. And so he equips him with all his armor and swords and all the stuff that he needed to go into battle. That was not what David needed. It was not what he was equipped to use. And so he just said, never Never mind, let me, let me use the power of God that is in me. And so David takes some, some stones and a slingshot and goes out to fight 
this giant. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, striking down him and killing him. There was no sword in his hand. And then David ran and stood over Goliath, and he grasped his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, and cut off his head with it. Now after the battle was over, when Saul saw David go out against him, he said to Abner, one of his people in his army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, well, inquire, inquire who this stripling is. And on David's return from killing Goliath, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of Goliath in his hand. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse. As they were going home, when David returned from killing Goliath, the women all came out of the towns of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul. They came out singing and dancing with tambourines and songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they made merry. And listen to what they sang. And as you listen to these words, put yourself in the place of King Saul, okay? You finally, finally win the battle. This formidable opponent that you've had forever, you finally win and you're coming back in. It's sort of like the Super Bowl parade after the team wins the Super Bowl and they come back to their hometown. There's all this fanfare and this jubilation. Well, that's what's happening here. So here's Saul, the first king ever. These are all really important details to remember about this because we have to see the big picture to understand why anger is so damaging. So you've got this this king, the first one ever, and he is the most handsome in all the land, and he is the one who is revered by everyone. And now listen. Here's what the women were singing. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And then we read, Saul was very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from then on. Saul got angry because as the parade was going on in his mind, who should have have received the accolades? Who should have gotten the attaboys? Him. David just fought one battle. I mean, really, come on. He hadn't led the people, really. He got lucky. It was a lucky shot. And so they're coming back in, and the people are chanting and cheering David. And Saul became angry. Now next week, we're going to talk about fear. 
Fear is a primary emotion. It is at the root of a lot of our other things that we feel. This morning, though, we are looking only at anger. Saul became angry. Why do we become angry? Go back to the opening illustration, the, the either you were really happy about it or really not happy about it when I said, you know, or tried to make you believe that I was going to move today. Put yourself in the leadership's position. We have a leadership team of about 30. We have a strategic team of seven. They're the decision-making people. If they are responsible for the finances and the well-being of the church, and they found out this morning that their pastor was moving on Tuesday, how do you think they would feel? They'd be angry. They would be angry because they would be vulnerable. That is at the root of anger. I want us to look at a few things this morning. What causes us to be angry? Vulnerability is at the root of all of our anger. One of the first things that causes us to be angry is when we face a threat to ourselves or our loved ones. I'll send these out to you this week in the daily devotions if you are subscribed to that. If not, you can go to our website and sign up there. But each of these points are things that make us angry. So the next time you get angry, I want you to ask yourself, why? Why am I angry? Because you see, if we will remove ourselves from that emotion in that moment and start thinking about it, we have the power of choice. We control how we act, how we react, or how we don't act. And sometimes when we're angry, the best thing to do is nothing. Say nothing. Do nothing. But bottom line, we have the power of choice. So we have to figure out why we do what we do. So we have to figure out why we are angry. Anytime we feel a threat to ourselves or other people that we love, we get angry. That is fear. Fear is the root emotion there. The next thing that causes us to be angry is when we are verbally or physically assaulted. We react out of that. The next is when we suffer a blow to our self-esteem or our place within a social group. I want to pause on this one for just a second because you see, this one is a little more unspoken. Oftentimes, this is more in our subconscious. We don't necessarily realize that's what's happening Think back to middle school or high school. That's a safe time to think about. Were there ever, well, not really safe, actually, because we all had stuff in middle school or high school. We had groups we wanted to fit in, and perhaps we didn't. We had things we wanted to achieve by being a part of teams of people, and we were shut out. Anytime we suffer a blow to our self-esteem or our place within a social group, it causes us to be angry. And unfortunately, it causes us to be angry at others, not necessarily ourselves. When we're angry at others, we react 
and that's never healthy. When we're angry at ourselves, that's only healthy if it's because of a behavior that we need to change. How do we determine that? Well, I think that's where our faith comes in. And we have to go even deeper and ask, are we living out of ego and desire for our own stature to rise like Saul? Or are we angry at ourselves because we really sh- we've done something wrong and we need to get past that and let it go and be a better person? Or are we angry at ourselves because we're never enough? Because we have some bar set way too high and we never achieve it. So we have this unhealthy anger. There's lots of different ways to be angry when our self-esteem suffers a blow. That's something we have to think about. Another reason that we get angry is when we're interrupted when pursuing a goal. A lot of times this happens in our professional careers or our academic achievement. If you're in school, we have goals set for ourselves, and then we try to achieve those goals, and when we can't, then we get angry. I used to despise my 10th grade English teacher. I never could quite make that A. It was the only thing that year, until I took chemistry later, uh, that messed up my GPA. And I despised her. She was the worst teacher ever. I'll never forget one day, one of my friends saying, why do you hate Miss Pearson so much. I said, she's an awful teacher. I said, or is it that you just can't get that A? It was that I couldn't get the A. It was my goal. She wasn't an awful teacher. I just wasn't working hard enough. It was easier to be angry at her than at myself. A lot of times in life, It's easier to be angry at other people than look at the things that cause us to feel vulnerable and have a need for power within ourselves. I want to say that one more time. Not to you, to me, to us. But a lot of times in life when we get angry at other people, It is because it is too painful or it hurts too much to look within ourselves and see what it is that we feel like we need to control or we don't want to be vulnerable about. Another thing that causes us to be angry is when we lose out, when money is at stake, or we have our property mistreated, or... Someone goes against a principle that we think is important. Two weeks ago, as I did the message, we had voices playing throughout the message, the voices that go on in my head while I'm preaching. They happen every Sunday. Now's one of those times. I'm debating in my head, do I say it, do I not say it? Then my stomach hurts, and then I think, ah, it'd be easier to not say it and just keep going. But, ah, the Holy Spirit convicts me, and I don't like it. I want to read that one more time. Someone goes against a principle that we consider important. 
That's what's happened over the last two weeks in our society. Now, I could just talk about the shooting in Charleston. That would be easier. But it's about more than that. Over the past two weeks, there's this huge debate about a Confederate flag. I need you to understand I'm as southern as they come. I have never in my entire 44 years of existence lived outside of the state of North Carolina. I understand the power of symbols. However, I also understand that meanings behind symbols change over time. And I also understand that I'm called to walk in the way of Christ, which means I look at things with the eyes of those who are being impacted. So therefore, I'm not going to make some kind of stance on the issue of the Confederate flag because I also believe in freedom. However, I probably won't put one on my car or have one hanging in my home because, you see, it causes pain to groups of people that are my friends, that are our friends. And then the Supreme Court decision on Friday. While I have personal opinions about that, I also know that there are groups of people in this world that do not interpret Scripture the way that I do. And that I am not a biblical scholar. And Jesus did not appear in my living room in person so that I could reach out and touch him and make sure that I am right I feel very strongly on this issue. And so far, God has not convicted me that I am wrong. And God does convict me on a lot of things. So therefore, I'm going to keep leading the way that I have been in love. And in the premise that all means all. But, there's a but. There are a lot of people in this world that don't believe the way that I believe. It makes me sad. It makes me disappointed. And I want to change things. I want to change things in the United Methodist Church. I want to change things in this world. And I want all people to be free, to be loved, and to celebrate that love. However, again, There are people in this world that don't interpret the scripture the way that I do. My father is one of them. He's been a Southern Baptist all his 87 years. I'm not going to change him. So what do I need to do? I need to not get angry when he goes against principles that I think are important. I must respond in love. It is when we respond in love that we are most like Jesus. And that's why we are called to do what we do. What causes us to be angry, being treated unfairly, and feeling powerless to change it. And the last thing is feeling 
disappointed by someone else or in ourselves. Many years ago in the United States, the images that you saw on the screen at the beginning, those images don't happen anymore. Many years ago, uh, people of different skin color couldn't use the same bathroom or drink out of the same water fountain. Today they can. Forty years from now, the things that we're talking about, the things that we're struggling with right now, they won't be a struggle anymore. But right now they are. You want to know what I believe and what many scholars believe made the biggest difference in the civil rights movement? The lack of rioting, and that they all responded consistently, especially their leader, in love. So when we're disappointed in others or they go against what we believe in, we are called to be like Jesus and respond in love. There's a book on the New York Times bestsellers list. It's called Boys in the Boat. It is a powerful book. It is a great teaching book, although I'm sure that's not what the author intended. I can only read a few pages and then I stop and take notes because it talks about the power of teamwork. It's about a young man named Joe Rance. He was born in the early 1900s. He had one older brother. You see Joe up on the screen. He's the little boy in the picture. He had a dad and a mom and an older brother. And then his mom fell critically ill, and she died when he was just a little bit older in this picture. His dad did not quite really know what to do. Joe came down with scarlet fever, and so his dad sent him to Philadelphia. Now, these folks lived in Washington State. His dad sent him across the country on a train alone to go live with his aunt and his uncle in their attic. He had just suffered the sudden and traumatic death of his mom. He has now scarlet fever and he is riding across the country in the early 1900s in a train to go live in an attic, basically, alone. His aunt and uncle cared for him, gave him the basic necessities, but everything that he knew, everything that he held on to, had been taken from him. After he got better and grew a little older, he moved back. His dad, by this time, his older brother had gotten married. His older brother's wife had a twin sister. Now, this is where it gets a little reality TV-ish. His brother's wife's twin sister ended up marrying his father. Yeah, I told you it was a little complicated. So a sister-in-law ends up becoming like a daughter-in-law. I mean, it's like, it is desperate housewives. His new stepmom did not really want him as a son. Times were hard. The Great Depression hit. Joe's dad was a great skilled laborer, but could not keep a job that would provide enough food. 
In the meantime, Thula, the dad's new wife and the dad, they had other children, and so that made it even more difficult for them to provide. Thula came from a little higher class of people, so she was used to having the niceties of life, and they never could catch a break. She became angry, and I imagine that Joe's dad felt very helpless. So when Thula came to him and said, I want Joe to move out, the dad responded by acknowledging her request. And so he sent Joe to live in the schoolhouse for a little while, and then something happened and Joe had to move again. Joe entertained himself by learning to play the banjo and guitar. And so he learned that he could pick up some spare money by playing in gigs in the town. As he grew older, finally his dad caught a little bit of a break and they built a house or started building a house and then something happened and uh, they never finished the house and that made Thula mad. So she and the dad and all the other children, the younger children, moved away from the house, did not tell Joe where they were going. They didn't speak to him. The dad just came and said, son, we're leaving and you're staying here. Joe went on and ended up graduating from high school and went to the University of Washington where, because of his brute strength and his tenacity to survive, he ended up making the rowing team. This is the rowing team, the picture that you see here, that went on to the 1936 Olympics in Berlin and they won the gold Metal. Sorry, spoiler alert if you read the book. Joe fell in love with a lady named Joyce when he was in high school, and they would ride on the bus, and she would listen to him play the songs on the bus. And they went to college, both of them, and one day Joe found his father. He found out that they were living just a few miles up the street from the University of Washington in Seattle, just 20 minutes away, away from where he had grown up. And he took Joyce to meet them. Thula answered the door, and Joe asked if he could see his siblings, and she said no. She told him to mind her own business, or mind his own business, and to not come back there ever again. In the book, Joyce is recorded as saying, how can you not be so angry? How can you not be so angry? They left you. I want you to hear, I want us to hear Joe's reply. It takes energy to be angry. It eats you up inside. I can't waste my energy like that and expect to get ahead. When they left, it took everything in me just to survive. Now I have to stay focused, and I've got to just take care of it myself. When they left, it took everything in me just to survive. I have to stay focused. It takes energy to be angry, and it eats you up inside. In a moment when you leave... Greeters are going to have uh, stress balls. They're made in the shape of a brain. I want you to get one of these. Don't leave it in your car. It'll melt. 
I want you to take it with you and I want you to keep it as a reminder. Put it on your desk at home or in your office or just throw it in one of your bags that you carry around and look at it and remember. We have the power to choose how we act, react, or don't act. Don't act out of anger. It's a secondary emotion that really points back to our not being in control or feeling afraid or vulnerable. And in those moments that you feel like you just can't keep it together, I would invite you to just go deeper inside yourself because that's where the Holy Spirit resides and pray. God, love, divine love always leads the way. Let us pray. Gracious God, you are the one that helps us when we feel most angry. You can help us control our anger and realize that it's really out of fear or vulnerability or some other emotion. God, help us to not be angry. Help us to respond in love always, just like the one who went before us did. He showed us the way. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.